In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read these words. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Not much can top the moment when you unwrap something new. You know, the paper is pulled back and you get that first glimpse of the new item. But usually it's pretty much downhill from that point. You know, over time, the shine wears off of whatever the new item was. And it's the same with pretty much anything new. A new plan, for example. You know, the excitement of making a new plan is replaced with just the hard work it takes to implement that plan. Now, our love for everything new is, I think, due in part to the awareness that the shine has worn off of us. So buying new things and forming new plans, I think, is the closest that we can get to the kind of new that we really want. What we really want is, is a new us, a, a new you, which is the theme of this series. Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate this season, is the only one who can give us that gift. And so in the weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to be unwrapping this gift and the features particularly of this gift. The new mouth that, that speaks words that actually help and, and build people up rather than build ourselves up and sometimes damage other people. The new ears that are able to hear the voice of God in, in the middle of all of the noise and all of the static and distraction that we face in our modern lives. The new spine that replaces the fear that dominates in various ways all of us and replaces it with the courage to do what is right, no matter what the cost is. And the new eyes that see people and ourselves and our circumstances from a very different angle. We begin to see things from the perspective of heaven, very different set of eyes. But today we're going to start with the new heart that Jesus offers, because without this, the other four are not possible. Hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, God prompted the prophet Ezekiel to describe the kind of impact that the arrival of Jesus would have on those particularly who had decided or would decide to follow him and to, to commit their lives to him to accept this gift. Here's what the prophet Ezekiel says about the impact of the arrival of Jesus. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols, all the things you've put in front of me. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now the Bible uses the physical heart throughout the pages of Scripture as a metaphor for the invisible core or center of, of who we are. The heart, the physical heart that's pumping in our chests is the place where toxins are removed and life-giving oxygen is distributed throughout the body. And sin is the, the toxin of the internal heart because it separates us from the life-giving presence of God. And at the core of who we are, at this invisible heart level, we, we have two heart problems. One is we, we have a purity problem. Our hearts have become impure. They're, they're full of this, this toxin of sin. And the second problem we have at the heart level is we have a passion problem. This, this sin has killed our heart for God, turning it into stone. Much like the way a physical heart attack damages the heart muscle and, and really destroys it. And so Jesus came to address these two heart problems, to remove the impurities from our heart and to give us a passion for him and for what is right. So how exactly 
does this occur? How, how, how do we unwrap this gift? Well, first we're going to address the purity problem, the ABCs of purity, how Jesus purifies a heart. As it says in Ezekiel, I will cleanse you from all your impurities. Now, the human heart is not all bad. It's a mixture of nobility and sin. Arising from our internal heart, we, we have good and noble thoughts and ideas and acts, and we also have not so noble and bad ideas and thoughts and acts. And most think that as long as there's more nobility that comes out of a heart than sin, then, then we're okay. The idea in most people's minds is that it's kind of like a scale. And as long as you tip the scale and the good balance, the good side, well, then that's about as good as can be expected and you should be okay. But sin is a, a toxin. And you don't measure toxins on a scale and make sure that you've just got a little more good stuff in your body than toxins. Because toxins, depending on the nature of the toxin, they, they have the power to kill with just very small quantities. For example, mercury is a toxin to the physical body. And so you don't think of mercury in terms of, well, I want a little more good cells than mercury-contaminated cells in my... No, you need to figure out, well, how much mercury can a person consume before it causes damage and becomes unsafe? Well, when it comes to food, the FDA has determined that if there's any more than one part per million, it's, it's unsafe. It's, it's toxic to the human body. One part per million. Well, how about sin? How many... How many parts per million acts or thoughts or deeds or words are acceptable level for sin? Well, in Romans 5 verse 16, we read this, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. It's speaking of the sin, the first sin done by Adam and Eve, eating, eating of the forbidden fruit, and it says just that one sin brought condemnation. It it brought a separation from God that went beyond Adam and Eve and, and introduced sin into the entire world. Just one sin brought God's judgment. Well, that's, that's impossible then. For us, if that's the level of toxicity that, that our heart, in other words, our heart can't even handle one sin before it begins to impurify or you know, make it contaminated and begin to kill it, well, then we have no chance. But listen to the second part of the verse. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. It's speaking of the gift of Jesus Christ that we're going to be talking about in the weeks leading up to Christmas. After many, many sins, many, many transgressions, the gift of God arrived and it brought justification, which means it purified the heart unlike anything else. So how exactly then do we receive or, or accept this gift. Now, it's one thing to buy someone a gift. They, they have to open it and receive it. So how do we open this gift? Well, it's by learning and then using the ABCs of purity. They're described for us in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is what it says. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. This is why even one sin, one act of darkness, throws us out of the presence of God because he doesn't just prefer light, he is complete light. There's, there's no darkness that can stand in his presence. So if we claim to have fellowship with him, if we claim that our relationship is okay, and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying, and we're not living out the truth. But if we walk in the light, 
As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So the, ways that I, the way that I like to describe this passage is just by using the ABCs. This is one of the easy ways to understand what it actually means for the, what Jesus did on the cross to purify the sins of our individual lives. The letter A stands for admit your sin. This is where it all begins. As it says in this passage, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the first step toward a pure heart is to admit that you do not have a pure heart. Now, I imagine pretty much everyone here would say, well, that, that's definitely true of me. But it's one thing to sit here and silently nod in agreement that you're not perfect. But what will probably happen to all of us is later this week, maybe even later today, you will sin. You'll say or do something that will hurt someone else. You will cross the line of, of what is right and venture into the land of dishonesty deception, maybe sexual sin, or greed. And at that point, rather than admit it to God and maybe to those that are being affected by it, our first response tends to be to minimize what we've just done and even defend or explain why it's reasonable what we just did. Now, why? So in theory, we admit that we're not perfect, but in practice, we get very defensive when it comes to our own sin. And the reason, I think, is because if we take our sin seriously, it, it begins to feel like we are a bit of a hopeless project. You know, I mean, if you begin to honestly admit your sin, it's just going to be a regular occurrence. And so we tend to be reluctant to admit it. You know, a few years ago, I was doing some work in one of our flower beds in the front of the house, and uh, I, was, I noticed all of a sudden some bubbling of the, the paint on, near the bottom of the, of the house. And my first thought was, we need to get bigger plants to cover up whatever's going on behind that paint. But then I realized, you know, no, that, that's probably not, not a good idea. And so I began to scrape behind that paint and figure out what was going on. And before long, the flower bed project turned into a painting project, which turned into a termite abatement project which turned into an eaves replacement project and an entire house painting project. So by the time I was done, I was really thinking, should have gotten bigger plants. <laughs> and I know this by experience. When it comes to house projects, it's never just one project, is it? I mean, do you ever just take one trip to Home Depot? No. You just start the day and say, we'll be seeing a lot of each other today. This is my first trip of however many I don't know. But I've begun to work on my house, and we will be seeing a lot of each other over the next several weeks. So this, it took three and a half months for us to finally complete this project. And that's, I say that because that's the way it often is with us. If you begin to kind of scrape below the, the surface veneer of how we present ourselves, and you begin to get really honest about your own sin, it's like, oh, now I've got to deal with this, and then I've got to deal with this, and then I've got to talk to this person, I've got to clear this up, and... It just gets overwhelming. And so we tend to opt for the let's just buy bigger plants approach to life. You know, let, let me just 
pretend that everything's going okay. Let me defend myself. Let me say to myself and everyone else, there's nothing here to see. Keep moving along, moving along. There's, there's nothing of interest here. But when we do that, we are separating ourselves from the help that God wants to give. And the reason is because God himself is light. It's not that he prefers light. It doesn't mean that he lives in a room with the lights on all the time. No, it says he, he is, in fact, light. And what that means is there's nothing hidden from his view, and, and there's no darkness that can enter into his presence. And so if you want help from God and a relationship with him, it begins whenever you turn around and step into the light. The idea is that God is light, and, and if we've got our backs to him and we are moving towards the darkness, it's not that he doesn't see us. It's that we are oriented towards the dark. We're, we're, we're not being honest. The moment we turn around, no matter how far we've walked away, the moment we turn around, all of a sudden now, he can begin to help us. This is where it always begins. We have to be honest and admit our sin. Now, whenever we admit our sin, it's not that God finally says, oh, there you are. You kind of dropped off the radar for a while. I had no idea where you were or what you were doing. No, 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 God... God sees everything. He is light. And just because you know, you've turned away from him doesn't mean that he's stopped pursuing you or he doesn't see you. Kind of reminds me of the way little kids are at a certain age. Actually, my grand granddaughters are at this age where they love playing peekaboo and they, they cover their eyes. And in their mind, it's like, you can't see them. And so they go, oh! and then we all go, there you are. I see you. You know, and, and it, it, I don't know exactly what goes on in the mind, but it, it's just so entertaining because it's as if you can instantly cover yourself just by doing this. And we, we tend to do that with God. We just cover ourselves, and then every once in a while we peekaboo, here I am, and then we go back to covering ourselves. And it, it's, it's God saying, yeah, yeah, okay, but I can see you all the time. You know this, right? You, you do have the understanding that peekaboo isn't, isn't about you disappearing the moment you turn around from me or cover your eyes towards me. So in order to get God's help, we have to first admit our sin. And then secondly, the letter B, we have to believe that Jesus is the answer to it. Jesus is the only one that can purify you. As it says here, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, sin is, is a deadly toxin. It's not just a commodity that we, we want to to weigh on a scale, and hopefully we've got more good stuff than bad stuff. It's, it's a toxin, and it will not stop until it has caused eternal death, eternal separation from God. And so simply saying sorry won't stop sin any more than if you've ingested too much mercury in your body, just saying, you know, that was a bad decision. I apologize for having eaten that mercury-laced food. That, that's not going to suddenly remove mercury from your bloodstream. Sorry and apologizing is good to do, but it, it doesn't take away sin. And cranking up and redoubling your moral efforts, while that's good and commendable, that doesn't solve the sin problem either. It, it just simply dilutes it. But you see, even one sin kills. Only a perfect, eternal life has the power to absorb the sin that's in your heart and in my heart. And this is what Jesus came to do. On the cross, as he was dying, he wasn't just dying a physical death. He was absorbing your sin 
and mine. And it killed him. His death was caused by our sin, not his. His life was perfect. His lifeblood was, was absorbing, creating the capacity to absorb the sins of our lives. Now, if his life had been contaminated with sin, like our life is, it would have no absorbing power because it would be contaminated. It only takes a complete, it requires a completely perfect life to absorb sin. And if he was just another man dying an unjust death and not God in flesh as he claimed to be, then his death, even if he'd be able to pull off a perfect life, his death would only purify at most one other life one time. You know, once you take a sponge and you use it to absorb a, a spill, you can't just take that sponge and now keep absorbing all kinds of spills. It, it's got the capacity for a spill. And that's all Jesus' life. He had one life on earth, and he lived a perfect life. But if he was just a man, his death, no matter how perfect it was, wouldn't have been able to provide the absorbing power for all of our sins. But he was God in flesh. And that's why the blood of Jesus Christ, as it says here, is able to purify us from all sin. It's the only filter, really, that can remove our sin. But that fact, that reality, will do a person, an individual person, no good until they believe that this is true and they ask Jesus to absorb the sin of their life. Just like a sponge, having a sponge there with the capacity to clean up a spill is great, but it's not going to actually clean up the spill until it's applied to the spill. And that's how we open the gift. We ask Jesus to cleanse us, and we believe that he actually does cleanse us. Now, if you don't believe this to be true, I would encourage you to, to really do the research on this. Read what Scripture says on this. Do the thinking on this. Don't, don't just reject this gift because it sounds a little complicated, or how does that work? Do the research. Figure this out. You don't want to enter into the next life when we stand before God and have no answer for your sin other than, I tried as best I could. Because it only takes one sin to separate you from God for all of eternity. So number one, letter A, admit your sin. Number Or letter B, believe that Jesus can purify you. Then letter C stands for commit. Commit now to follow Jesus. You see, this purifying decision is a decision that that not only purifies you, but it changes you from that point going forward. It changes your walk. That's why you see this word walk mentioned a couple of times in this First John passage. We now walk toward the light, not away from it. That's the general direction of our life. Now, we may get off track. No one does this perfectly. And if we find ourselves walking away from the light, then we need to turn around and get back on track. That's the direction of our life now. We have committed not just to accept the forgiveness of Jesus, but now to follow him as our Lord, as our boss. So what that means is it's not just that our life is filtered once through the life of Jesus. It's every day now is filtered through what he taught, what he said. And again, as I said, no one does this perfectly, but it changes the basic direction and orientation of a person's life. Now, every day, our life will still have contaminants that need to be filtered. 
So we keep going through these ABCs. You don't just do this once. You don't just admit your sin once and believe that Jesus can forgive you once and commit to following him once. There is a first time, and that's a big and momentous decision. But having made that decision, you keep going through the ABCs over and over and over and over again. You admit your sin. You confess it to God and to other people that may have been impacted by it. And you trust that it is the forgiveness of Jesus, not your moral efforts, that is purifying you. And you move forward now with a commitment to learn how to walk with Jesus more accurately. Because the ABCs, they're not just a one-time deal. And when you talk about the ABCs of our language, there was a time where, as a kid, you learned the ABCs, and then you learned how to read. But in a sense, you've never moved beyond the ABCs. You use them more now than you did back then. As you write, as you communicate, as you send emails, you're using the ABCs all the time, and this is the way the Christian life is. We use these ABCs more and more and more as we follow Jesus. So that's how the gift of Jesus affects our impure hearts and purifies us. Now, what about our passion? What about our deadened hearts? Well, let's move on now to the three G's of passion. It says, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So sin not only has poisoned the heart, it has damaged the heart in the process. You know, the primary symptom of a loss of feeling for God or passion for God is that what matters to him no longer really matters to us. And that's the way our heart is without Jesus. They have been turned to stone. And we're just kind of dead to the things that God says are really, really important. You know, what's true of a person who, whose heart is hardened? They just don't care anymore. They, they don't have any interest in the person or the relationship. You know, recently I was standing in line. I decided to be friendly and turn around and greeted the person who was standing right behind me in line. And in response, the person completely ignored me, said absolutely nothing. In fact, it was so awkward. It, I thought, now, did I just think I say hi or did I, did I, a verbal, I, I said this, right? I mean, there were sound waves involved and I remember it's like, no, I, he, he, right there. And I, I greeted him, but instead he just, he looked right over the shoulder, just like right past me to something else. And I thought, well, well, maybe, maybe he's deaf. Maybe, maybe he can't hear. And later I discovered, no, no, he, he can hear. He just, just completely ignored me. That's what it's like talking to a stone. Now you can greet a stone, stone ain't going to respond to you. This guy was, literally, he was dead to me. You know, he, he, I was like a non-entity. I was a stone standing in line in front of him, and he'd probably want me out of the way so he could move to the next spot in front of me. And this, this is how God experiences most people. They, they just look right past him. You know, he's communicated to them, but they, there's something else they're looking at. You know, it's obvious that there's no love for what he said in the Bible because they don't ever read it, if at all. They, there's, no, there's no love for the, the Word of God because they don't, they don't ever pick it up and spend any time in it. It's clear that there's little passion for his church because almost any other passion can get in the way of being a part of church life. Now, let me be clear, it's it, it's not that we don't have any feelings. 
that our internal heart is completely dead. I mean, scratch our car, mess with our new TV, take our money, and whew, there's all kinds of feeling, right? Now, we, we are alive on the inside. It's just when it comes to the things of God, we're, we're kind of dead. When it comes to the things that matter to us now, well, we are very passionate. We, we're just off in what we are passionate about. And the reason is because our heart has been damaged by sin. You know, like a heart attack, our spiritual heart muscle has, heart muscle has been killed. It's damaged. And so when Jesus comes, he doesn't only purify, he doesn't only remove the toxins and provide forgiveness, he now puts a new heart in us. We're given a spiritual heart transplant of sorts. We now have a new passion for the things of God. For example, the, the sin that used to feel so good is now not near as fun as it used to be. I mean, we're still tempted, but it, it just doesn't have the same pull, the same power that it used to. And while we don't instantly understand everything in the Bible, there, we're learning more and more of it, and it's becoming more alive to us. It begins to stir us to, to action and deed on the inside. And while people can still be very irritating to us, our heart for other people is growing. We actually find ourselves interested in and caring about people more often. Now, if that's not your experience, if you honestly would say, you know, I, 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 I'm still as tempted as I was before, and you know, the Bible is still not something that I really want to spend much time in, and people are still as irritating to me as they always were, then it could be that you have the new heart, but you just have not been taking the anti-rejection drugs that go along with the new heart. You know, when a, when a new physical heart is placed in a physical body, what is the body, how does the body respond to a heart transplant? It rejects it. And so anti-rejection drugs are needed to be taken for how long? The rest of the patient's life. Because the body will always natively respond to the new physical heart as a foreign object. Because it is. It isn't the heart that was there initially. It's, it's a new heart that's been transplanted. And this is the same thing that happens with our spiritual heart. Jesus comes and we decide to follow him and he gives us a new heart in the patterns of our life that are resident in our body. This is the way we live life. They, they are well established. You get a new heart, but it's inside the old body, the same you. And all those patterns of your past, they are well entrenched and they keep fighting against and rejecting the new heart. And that's why God has given us anti-rejection drugs to keep taking, to push against the natural rejection that occurs to this new heart. They counter the old passions and support the new passion for God. Now, we think that passion is something that you follow, but actually passion is a follower itself. Did you know you can choose what you're going to be passionate about? And then passion will follow that. But most people just kind of wait for a passion to kind of roll over them, and then they'll pursue that. But without a new heart, you'll never develop a passion for the things of God. On your own, without Jesus Christ, you'll, you'll, you'll not be able to change that much. It'd be kind of like trying to resurrect a stone. But once God gives you a new heart, now you need to cooperate with it in order for change to occur. 
and you cooperate with it by knowing what it is that passion follows. And I've, I've identified these as the three G's. These are the three G's of passion, and they are the three, anti, the three main anti-rejection drugs that allow the new heart that Jesus puts in us to, to actually begin to affect change in the ways we're going to be talking about in the Sundays coming up. So let's look at these three G's, the three G's of passion. The first G is goals. Passion follows what it is that you are intentionally pursuing. In other words, passion always follows your goals. This is described in Colossians 3, 1 through 2, when it comes to the spiritual heart. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts, where? On things that are above. Where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God, where's that? Heaven. Set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. What does it mean to set your heart and your mind on things that are above? Well, whenever you set your heart on something that you want, the next thing you do is you direct your, minds, your mind to figure out how to get there. You set a goal. This is, where, this is what I want. And then your mind goes to work. How do I get from where I am to where I want to be? And what this is saying is you're, you do that all the time with, with earthly things. But now that you, you've been raised with Christ, now that your life has been changed on the inside, you need to lift your sights a little higher. You need to set some goals that, that, that will affect what happens in all of eternity, not just what happens here. And once you set your heart on those things, then you put your mind to work to say, now, how, how, could, I, how could I grow in this area? How could I become more like the kind of person that makes an impact in what's going to last for all of eternity, not just someone who plans things here? Passion always follows plans. For example, if, if in your marriage right now, there's, there's just no passion, both of you are just kind of going through the motions, it's just kind of dead, I don't know all of the reasons behind why that is, but one thing I can almost promise you is there's no goals in your marriage. There's nothing that the two of you have set your heart on, and you're trying to figure out now with your minds, how, how, can, we, how can we elevate our marriage to this level? You, you don't have any goals. And where there's no goals, there's no passion. If you're not passionate about your work, if you're just bored and just going through the motions, again, I don't know all of the reasons behind it, but part of it is you've got no goals at work. There, there's nothing other than just get a next paycheck that's driving you. There, there's nothing bigger that you're trying to accomplish. There, you're not trying to advance yourself in some ways and put your mind to try to figure out that. And therefore, there's absolutely no passion there. And the same thing with God. If honestly right now you'd have to say, you know what, I'm kind of bleh in my relationship with God. There's just, there's just no passion there. Again, I, I don't know all of what's causing that, but one of the things that I would say is probably true is you've, you've got no God goals. There, there, there's nothing above. There's nothing that would please the heart of God that you've set your heart on and that you're now trying to move in that direction. So do, do you have any God goals right now? What are they? I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to ask you in person later, but I'll just ask you now, what are they? And if I were to ask you in person, what are your God goals? Now, now please don't be afraid of approaching me. I'm not going to start doing this to people. <laughs> but I would know the moment I would look in your face after I said that, I would know whether you had any or not. Because if you were instantly like, uh, 
yeah, you don't have any, <laughs> you know? Just like in work. If, what are your goals at work? Uh, yeah, you don't have any. What are your goals in your marriage? Uh, yep, no goals. So, so do, you, do you have any God goals? What are they? Now, becoming a better person is not a God goal. That's too vague, you know? That's like your marriage goal, becoming a better husband or a better wife. Great. How? That's, that's too vague. Your goals need to be specific. How specifically? What have you set your heart on in, in the God arena, and are you moving towards? So that's goals. The second G is gathering. Passion always follows relationships, just like it follows goals. So who, who are you gathering with regularly? Hebrews 3.13 says, But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be, what? Hardened by sin's toxicity, deceitfulness. You know, in order to counter the ongoing effects of sin on our heart, we, we need people in our lives that encourage us towards the things of God. How often do we need this? Well, is it today? Is, it, is this today called today? Yes. What this is saying is you could probably use some today. The basic assumption is every one of us could use some encouragement today. Because this is a very discouraging world that we live in. And if you just live in this fallen world, courage will be sapped out of you. And so at any given point, you can just assume anyone that you are talking to could use some encouragement. And the, the way we are encouraged is the people around us who are trying to move towards the things of God themselves, they help us. They encourage us to move towards those things also. This is one of the purposes of the church. You know, we, if the purpose of the church was just to disseminate information about God, we could do it all online. But, but you can't really encourage someone remotely. You have to know them. You have to care about them. They have to care about you. And you have to be able to speak words that really help move them forward. We all need this. The church is the chance to link lives with people who are encouraging, who are heading in the same direction. So, so take the initiative here. Build friendships with people who are also followers of Christ. Invite, invite them over to your house this holiday season. Get together for fun. Join the next round of growth groups. So if you have little or no passion for God, again, I don't know all of the reasons, but there's a good chance that you are isolated from God's people. That there, there is no one who is following Christ that is a close, personal friend right now that, that your life is woven together with. And therefore, on your own, you're, you're just going to get, your heart's going to go dead. So who we connect our life to will shape what we are passionate about. Passion always follows relationships. And then the third G is giving. Passion always definitely follows our money. Always has, always will. Where are your dollars going is the question. Jesus said this in the best succinct statement that could ever be made on this. Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, guess what's also there? There your heart is. That's, he's not saying that's the bad thing. He's just saying this is just a fact about the heart. Passion and treasure are always connected. 
I got a letter a couple weeks ago from the state of California saying that I owe them $500 more. Now, what, what do you think my response to that was? Was it a, oh, well, $500, easy come, easy go? No, it was a, what? I already paid them. What, what do you mean $500? Well, it turned out, after spending a long time on the phone with lots of people, that it was their mistake. But that letter had my full attention right? The same principle works in our relationship with God. Now, God doesn't send us bills in the mail to get our attention, but He does tell us to give. Now, the reason is not because He's short on money and needs some cash, but because our hearts need to be softened by generosity. This this is one of the great anti-rejection drugs for the new heart. We need to be softened by generosity. So if there's little or no passion for the things of God in your life, one of the places you might look is your bank account. Is there any evidence of generosity? Generosity is not just, all right, I'll give a few dollars. In order for our heart to be impacted, generosity means that, that something about our lifestyle has to change for us to be generous. Something that we really wanted, we... We don't get now because we've decided to be generous. It has to be generous to that level for it to actually begin to affect us at a heart level. I know a few things that will stir passion in a human heart, like our money. Now, this Christmas, this is why you and I are going to give gifts to those that we love. Gifts, quite possibly, that might meet no practical need and are often above and beyond what you normally give. Why, why would you do that? Because you've got just all kinds of extra money? Well, maybe some of you. But for a lot of us, it's because of passion. It's because we love these people. It's an expression of the love that, that you feel for your kids or your spouse or someone else close to you. You see, it's not enough for us at the end of the year to total up all of the money that it's taken to, say, feed and clothe and educate our kids and let that just speak for itself. <laughs> now, that would be a sad Christmas morning, right? Son, I, I did the math, and this year, I, I, my, my estimates is we've spent $5,834 clothing and educating and putting you in sports. That's, that's how much we love you. And here's just a little note, kind of with a breakdown <laughs> of, of our heart for you. That's, that's not going to fly, right? I mean, it is. Isn't that an evidence of your love for your child? Yes, of course it is. But you see, that there's a sense that, you know what, <laughs> I, need to, I need to do something else in addition to the kind of the normal things. And so you give them something that they really want or something you know will represent your love for them that may not be practical at all. You're moved to go, to go beyond and give them something that represents your love. And this is the same kind of thing with God. This is um, one of the reasons every Christmas, well, for the last several Christmases here at Seabreeze, we, we do the same kind of thing with God. You know, throughout the year, all of us who are part of this church, we, we tithe, we give generously to advance what God's doing here at this church. But on Christmas, we decide, you know what, we're going to do something above that. We're going to give beyond the needs of this church. In the last several years, we, we've called this our us for them Christmas offering. 
none of what we give to this is, is for us. This, this, is, this is for them. And I want to just describe this, this offering that we're doing this Christmas again. There, there's four parts I want to describe to you. There, there's four different uh, partners that we work with. And you'll know of some of these. Maybe some of these will be new to you. But we want to help them practically in some ways uh, that are beyond what we're doing here personally as a church. The first one is Bracken's Kitchen. And Bill Bracken is, is a member. Bill and Molly are members here uh, of Seabreeze. And Bill started this um, this about two years ago as an effort to provide nutritious meals to those who are in need, in need here in this county. Now, you would think here in Orange County that, boy, when it comes to food, everybody's doing just fine. But that, that's just not the case. And Bill is able to, to really figure out how to provide nutritious meals, and he's got a food truck that, that travels to different places and particularly works with families, with kids that are undernourished because of the financial needs that they face. And one of the things that Bill wants to do this next year is he wants to start a culinary training program to help a number of people who are in need learn the skills of the culinary arts and so that they can leverage that into a job and begin to provide for and take care of themselves. So we'd, we'd like to, as a church, we'd like to give $35,000 to that effort uh, through our Christmas offering. So that's one of the parts. Another part is through the 17.6 network. Now this is the network of churches that, that we are a part of. Uh, we share a number of values together. If you're familiar with the heart attitudes, we share the heart attitudes together uh, as a network of churches. A lot of the training that we do um, to help people grow beyond a basic commitment to Christ uh, is material that we've developed together as a network of churches. And there's a few churches uh, in Thailand and in Germany right now that are interested in using one of the training programs we use. It's called North Star. And they want to use North Star in their training programs. And so that's going to require uh, the translation of that material into German and into Thailand and kind of create a format by which we might be able to translate it into other languages as things grow. And also we want to develop some more training programs to help the churches. And so we'd like to give $30,000 uh, to, to this effort through the 17.6 network. The next partner, you may be familiar with this if you've been around here for a while, it's called the Voice of the Refugees. This is a ministry that we partner with in Anaheim that helps refugees who are settling here uh, from the Middle East. They're coming from refugee camps uh, here to the Orange County area. And they would like to develop a music program for the kids. One of the things that uh, is true of families that are resettling is it's just very traumatic, not only for them, but particularly for the kids. I mean, adults, we can take a lot of transition, but boy, it's just tough for the kids. And so they've decided that a music program would not only help the kids learn English, but would help give them a sense of, of dignity and place, you know, as they adjust to all of the changes that are going on in their life. And so we would like to give $20,000 uh, to the starting of the effort of developing that program this next year. And then the last part of the Christmas offering is Horizon Pregnancy. This is a local clinic that helps women who are facing unplanned, uh, unwanted crisis pregnancies. Uh, so far this year, they estimate that about 123 women that had intended uh, to uh, get an abortion uh, chose instead to, uh, to keep the baby after they received a free ultrasound and support that follows that. So we, we'd like to give $15,000 uh, to help support this ministry. That, that makes the total goal of our 2016 Christmas offering right at $100,000. So next week, we're going to have a lot of these partners out in the courtyard. Uh, you can learn more about their ministries. But I want you to make, be aware of this um, and begin praying about what God might want you to give towards uh, this Christmas offering. 
Uh, you can give online. Next Sunday, we're going to have some, some offering envelopes that are tied to this. You can use those offering envelopes to give, too. So as I said, next Sunday, several of the partners will be here, so uh, you can learn more about that uh, next Sunday. At this time, I'd like to invite uh, Matt Crystal, our youth pastor, and then Elliot Edwards, our associate pastor, up on stage. And the reason is uh, Matt and I are going to be leaving tomorrow for a week, a missions trip in Tokyo, Japan. We're going to be connecting with a church in Tokyo called the Biblical Church of Tokyo. Um, here's a picture of the, from the roof of that church. The church meets in what used to be an eight-story cake factory in Tokyo, and they meet on the top floor and utilize some of the other floors for different ministries. And the pastor of this church is uh, Seiji Oyama. Uh, Seiji and his family were a part of Seabreeze uh, for a number of years before they went back to Tokyo to pastor this church. And the purpose of this trip is to really reconnect uh, with that ministry and try to explore ways that we might be able to partner with them and help them uh, as a church. If you know much about Japan, there are not many Christians in Japan. So we're trying to figure out ways that we might be able to uh, help uh, with what God is doing in that region. So uh, we'd like you to, to pray for us as we go. If you'd like a prayer card with some more information about how to pray for us, uh, there's a table over there on that side of the auditorium that you can pick, uh, pick up a prayer card uh, on that table. We'd, we'd really appreciate your prayers this next week. So I've asked Elliot uh, to pray on your behalf for us as we head out uh, tomorrow. We're going to be gone about a week. We'll be back uh, a week from Tuesday. So Elliot, would you pray for us? Yeah. If you guys would join me in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity that Matt and Bevan have to go to Japan and to reconnect and um, to see if this would be a um, good partner and learn about some of the opportunities that we might have over there. God, I pray that you would give insight to both of them into um, exactly what this church is doing and trying to reach people for you and trying to help people experience the new heart that Bevan just talked about. They're trying to do very similar things to what we're trying to do, but I pray that you would give a lot of insight into the specifics of how we could come alongside them and really support the work they're doing. I pray that Bevan and Matt would be an encouragement to um, Seiji and his wife and the different leaders of the church that they're going to be interacting with. I pray that their presence would be a blessing over there in Japan. I also pray, God, that you would allow there to be um, really, really beneficial conversations where Matt and Bevan could get some insights into, um, again, how we can be of support to the people there. And then, Father, finally, I just ask for protection. I pray for the flights, that everything would go smoothly, and their health over there you would protect and wouldn't allow illness to derail anything. And then I pray for the families that um, are here. I pray for Rebecca, and then I pray for Laura and Kyson, that you would protect them back here, and then the different responsibilities that the guys are leaving. I pray that your hand of blessing would be over those. I thank you again for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.